So the best review of Memento on Letterboxd basically said, this is what Finding Dory should have been. That's Guy Pearce, and this is The Letterboxd Show. Hello, hello. This is The Letterboxd Show. I'm Gemma Gracewood, Letterboxd's Editor-in-Chief. On this episode, we have Jessica Bruder, the journalist who wrote the book that inspired the film Nomadland. She'll be talking about her favourite films and Nomadland's journey from page to screen, and also her small part in the big saga of Edward Snowden's box. We also have Australian wonder Guy Pearce, a.k.a. Leonard Shelby, a.k.a. Mike from Neighbours. He's here for the DVD and Blu-ray release of The Last Vermeer, and we also talk about his impending directorial debut, what his kid is watching, and the exquisite pleasure of filming interrogation scenes. But first, it is award season, and I have one of our favourite awards junkies, Dominic Corrie, right here. Hi, Dom. Hi, Gemma. How are you? Well, like I say, I can't complain. So let's recap. We've just had the Golden Globes and we're a few days away from the Oscar nominations announcement. So we're in the thick of what, what you know, people in the biz know as FYC season for your consideration. But it's so strange, isn't it? It's all happening virtually. And I'm so fascinated by how the industry is being reached when they can't sort of go along to those traditional guild screenings in the fancy theatres. Well, that's, that's the most romantic side of how weird things are this year this idea that because it's not a giant schmooze fest and films aren't necessarily being assessed on the quality of the canapes at the screenings that are being attended there's this idea i don't know how true it is that maybe the films are being assessed on i don't know their actual merit and that there's this it's sort of a bit more of a of a, of a vacuum of um of swaying factors and so you know do, do you think that's that's true do you, are you seeing that well i would say on the basis of how well nomadland and minari did at the golden globes i would say that is certainly bearing some fruit that theory on the other hand the nominations included music and emily and paris so i'm not entirely convinced but also that just highlights how ridiculous the Golden Globes are and that all their power is perceived rather than actual and that they just happen to be the most watched awards show outside the Oscars. So there's this scene as being sort of the main ramp up, but they're, they're a completely different voting body. You know, that instead of thousands of industry members, it's 87 photo op loving so-called journalists the organization Time's Up came storming out the gate this year with a with a campaign about the Hollywood foreign press's extreme lack of representation. So who are the Hollywood foreign press anyway for listeners yeah. who, who haven't quite figured it out? And to be honest, I still haven't quite figured it out either. Well, they say they're an organization representing foreign journalists in Hollywood, which is a nice idea, but they're not really that. There are some legitimate journalists in their membership they're an organization that basically exists to prop up the Golden Globes. And they get amazing access in Hollywood press circles because 
the studios love their films getting Golden Globe attention and it's a great platform to promote their wares. But as far as advancing journalistic principles, they're not really doing that at all. They, 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 they wouldn't have the stature or presence that they have if it wasn't for this one awards show that gets a lot of viewers and, and is famously a boozy night filled with A-list celebrities. And so why wouldn't people pay attention to that? But then this idea that they're supposedly the foreign journalists in Hollywood is kind of crazy because there are lots of foreign journalists in Hollywood and most of them aren't members of the HFPA because it's a notoriously hard organization to get into. We all heap scorn upon them, but uh, we, we would probably all very happily be members because of the great access they do get. So it's sort of some weird closed loop where we hold the awards in some kind of esteem still because it's a because it's been a fun boozy broadcast that also is a interesting precursor to the Oscars but the only reason it still exists is because this shady organization still exists to prop it up who have no bearing on anything else that happens throughout the filmic year is that yeah I think it's just the great ratings that those three hours get and the and the people who show up for it justifies it all uh you know celebrity is the greatest currency in america it seems a lot of the times is there an option to not show up like i'm thinking about the times up campaign this year and about how shocking it is that there is no black member of the hfpa and thinking well why don't the celebrities just walk away from it is that an option i think we've come closer to that possibility than we ever have before this year. And I hope the momentum continues every year. It's pointed out that the HFPA is kind of a ridiculous organization and shouldn't be taken seriously. And then the awards happen and everyone pays attention and the eyeballs justify it all. But with this LA times article that pointed out that there's no black members, there are people of color in there, of course, it's not that surprising there's no black members because they hardly ever let any new members in at all. Anyway, and, and so their, right. their, their um, demographics are kind of suggested by who the journalists were in the mid-60s or something. <laughs> but also pointing out that they're a, a schmooze-happy body that gets flown around on junkets and stuff. Are you gutted you missed out on that junket to Paris for Emily? That did sound like a good one. But the, the shock and alarm about that junket is perhaps slightly overstated because there's lots of journalists not in the HFPA who are doing trips like that. And, and I don't know if that should necessarily be perceived as straight payola, but the fact that Emily and Paris, as, as someone told us to pronounce it at one point, got a nomination for best comedy, I think, TV series, it sort of shows that the, the HFPA do want to kind of keep certain people happy and spread around the love. I don't know how many of our listeners understand about what junkets look like, but, um, you know, these days they look like you get invited into a Zoom room, you wait in the waiting room, and then you, if you're, a, a, a I guess, a, a TV news outlet, you get led into this Zoom room with your celebrity for four minutes and you, get, you ask you two questions and you're out. Now... A year ago, that would have looked like being flown to the city that the celebrity was in, being put up in a hotel, getting a film crew together, going to the hotel itself, 
eating the canapes while you wait in the waiting room and then going into the hotel room with the, you know, the psych backdrop advertising the film for your four minutes with that celebrity. An extraordinary use of resources for a couple of minutes of TV time versus everybody doing it from home just like we are right now. Well, there's there's this notion that maybe we'll never go back to that type of excess because the pandemic has shown that it can all happen online and the content you end up with isn't that drastically different to what we got in person. But I think that it will all come back because it's such a flesh pressing exercise. A big part of the publicity game is like I said before, we'll let you get close to these people. You'll be able to breathe the same air, which is now a scary notion for some people. We all revere celebrities so much and, and, and it's exciting to be in their company and being on a Zoom call with someone is not being in their company. What I really enjoyed about the Golden Globes was seeing Jodie Foster and Alex in their beautiful silk pajamas with their puppy, the Goldie Horn entire Kate Hudson family just sort of crammed into a room and Aaron Sorkin with his harem of whoever those people in that room were, including his assistant of 22 years, which was amazing. I am I I loved the the Ruffalo family just kind of piling in on each other and Lee Isaac Chung's daughter throwing herself at him and all these moments that you had to sort of you know I mean it's a it's it's a long way from Taika Waititi pretending to be asleep at the Oscars when his <laughs> short film was nominated for best short film to try and get any semblance of improvisation into a very orchestrated event. Yeah, that, the, the Jodie Foster, that was my absolute highlight, just seeing how comfortable she was, considering that she was very uncomfortable, quite reasonably so, expressing her true self for such a long time. She, she came out relatively recently. And just to see her just being so herself in that moment was great. I loved David Fincher taking his little drink each time. <laughs> each time he lost. Know, or, or each time someone else won. Yeah. yeah. You're right. It was it was interesting and it was a point of difference. But overall, I thought that the Golden Globe ceremony itself was quite poorly managed on a technical front, especially compared to the Emmys, which seemed really flawless and lots of virtual environments and and just the fact that the first guy to win, we couldn't hear him when Daniel Kalia won. That was unfortunate. The, those weird little like when they went out to the ad breaks and they would have the little montage of people standing there and it was never quite, you're never sure whose audio you were getting. Yeah. And they all looked kind of uncomfortable and weren't (laughs) sure if they were supposed to be interacting or, you know, I mean, there was a surprising number of presenters there in the room as well, which was kind of interesting. Absolutely true. I mean, it's so funny because I have the opposite opinion, which is I I absolutely loved the technical chaos because it <laughs> it just, you know, celebrities, they're just like us. They're they're, they're on mute too. <laughs> okay, so moving on from the Golden Globes uh, to the Oscars, the nominations for the 93rd Academy Awards are going to be announced and we're a week away, so March the 15th, uh, which means that we are right in the middle of for your consideration season. And, um, you know, it's taking place in this sort of virtual pandemic environment uh, and studios are having to get quite creative with what they're doing. Uh, for our part, you know, full disclosure, Letterboxd uh, has partnered with Neon to present uh, for US 
Letterboxd members at least a package of the their six films that are up for consideration. Uh, so they've got some documentaries and some international features in there. So there's Gunda, Noturno, The Painter and the Thief, Dear Comrades, Night of the Kings, and Quo Vadis Ida, which is um, the submission from Bosnia and Herzegovina. What sort of feels different and, and either better or worse in this consideration season as we lead up to what will surely be the strangest Oscars ever? I think the fact that we're not all at the movies, even though these films are accessible to everyone, arguably more people, the very fact that we're not going out, it feels like there's less discussion and it feels like it doesn't matter as much this year. It's sad to admit, it just feels like that lack of physical interaction is leading to a lack of discussion and the great participation of going to the movies as a culture kind of isn't there. So people aren't as invested. I mean, I guess you could say that could have contributed to why the Golden Globes rated so lowly because not as many people have seen the films and the films just don't feel like as grander an affair as each year's Oscar collection usually seems to be. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. I think, I think the films themselves are suffering. It doesn't mean the films are any less worthy or less grand in, in and of themselves, but it just doesn't feel like we're um, as engaged as a film going society as we usually are. I mean, what's interesting in my experience of friends who are in the Academy is that... They all watch them at home anyway. They all watch them at home <laughs> anyway. You know, yeah. they're all getting Blu-rays and screeners and and that's like every previous year. So I wonder I wonder how much difference it is going to make. And, you know, I'm more interested in what the, what the interesting campaigns are. I think one thing, this is truly kind of laid to rest, one argument this year's late dress is remember how much consternation there was only a few years ago about whether or not streaming movies counted or should be seen on the same level as theatrical films that's just all gone now no one's worrying about that anymore spielberg must cry into his pillow at night about it as i just just heard an interesting comment by the head of neon in an indiewire podcast actually where he said so therefore, it's time for the streamers to face up to what their audience numbers are. Because if you don't care about theatrical, then tell us what your theatrical is. Tell us what your viewing numbers. Tell us about your box office, your streaming box office. And I thought that was interesting. It's you know, it's definitely time. It's so time, and this this cry is only going to get louder. We can't just be existing in this place of ignorance when it comes to streaming numbers they, they've said oh no no we, it's okay don't worry about it we're, we're on top of it but it's it's important information that that is not just commercially sensitive information for you it, it, it needs to you know be cited as as an argument for why you should watch a film or how many people are engaging with a film it seems like everything netflix puts out they're like it's our most watched thing ever and it's like you just say that every time hey dom what is the best thing you watched this week i just watched coming to america <laughs> me too <laughs> i liked it i lo i missed the edge of the first one i would i just love it when eddie murphy swears but but it was an it was a nice little film i yeah i don't think it's going to be getting any awards recognition i would have loved to have seen that in a cinema i would have loved to have seen it in a cinema i i did enjoy it i enjoyed seeing all those 
old faces back again. I don't think that Shari, she hasn't aged a day. Uh, yeah. But I did agree with Philbert Dye's letterbox review. You know, this was the review I agreed with the most, which was, if I might make a suggestion, if you're making a movie where part of the point is that women should be on an equal standing with men and have the right to rule as much as anyone else, maybe you can write it in such a way that the women are the lead characters instead of merely beneficiaries of the epiphanies that these men experience. Nice to see everybody, though. Everybody looks great. Yeah, I thought they were setting up the the daughters to have actual storylines. Yeah. <laughs> but they were just kind of there. But I did enjoy seeing On Vogue and Salt and Pepper just, you know, busting a few numbers. That was great. Hey, we've got an interview with Guy Pearce coming up very shortly. I know you're a Christopher Nolan fan. Where does Memento sit for you in the Nolaniverse of your heart? I think Memento's gotten more interesting over time, just uh, how much it seems like a, a statement of intent for Christopher Nolan. Of course, wasn't his first film that was following, which is an interesting little oddity. But Memento, so many themes in there that he would return to. I think you could almost call Inception an unofficial Memento sequel in that it's sort of about the the delusions we present ourselves. That seems to be a real recurring thread for Nolan a question I want to ask you uh, just just ahead of before we dive into chatting with Guy Pearce about interrogation scenes and the great Australian cartoon series Bluey um, you have written a fun essay for us on the I guess gender fluidity of interstellar fandom do you want to tell me a bit about uh, the journey of writing that yeah well I was excited when you pointed out to me how Interstellar is the only film on these these lists uh, arranged by how you identify an agenda on the gender spectrum on, on Letterboxd. It's the only one that sort of sits atop all three of them. And I've always loved how Interstellar is this super cutting edge, technically mind-blowing film that is like, no, no, it's all about love. Love isn't something we invented. It's observable, powerful. It has to mean something. Love has meaning, yes. Social utility, social bonding, child rearing. We love people who have died. Where's the social utility in that? None. Maybe it means something more, something we can't yet understand. So many big sci-fi movies try to do that, and I just thought Interstellar did it so well. It said, no, love is the most powerful force in the universe even next to gravity and space flight and all these things. And, and it just, to me, it completely laid to rest any arguments that Christopher Nolan's not an emotional filmmaker, which he gets accused of being a lot. I bawled like a baby the first time I watched Interstellar. And it's interesting how often the word crying appears in all the letterboxed reviews. It's the film that makes everyone cry. And, <laughs> and perhaps it's a bit earnest, but perhaps that's why it sits atop those three lists. It's it's that love is the, is the great universal force, you know, that supersedes a lot of other things. And it was really nice to be able to espouse that for Letterboxd and just talk about, you know, my unabashed love for it. <laughs> well, I love the piece and I hope uh, everyone listening has a good read of it. Dom, thanks so much. Cheers, Gemma. Oh, 
Australian actor and musician Guy Pearce is one of the stars alongside Clace Bang and Vicky Creeps of The Last Vermeer, which premiered under the title Liarbird at the 2019 Toronto International Film Festival. Now out on digital, Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Entertainment, The Last Vermeer is the story of one of the most fascinating court cases in art history. At the end of the Second World War, when the Monuments men unearthed the loot stolen by Nazi war criminal Hermann Goering, that loot included a priceless painting by Vermeer, The Woman Taken in Adultery, which was sold to him by a Dutch artist, Han van Mecheren. Van Mecheren was subsequently accused of being a Nazi sympathizer and faced a dilemma. Do I go down in history as a Nazi collaborator or do I make an extraordinary accusation against myself? The court case completely changed the way Vermeer was evaluated and it led to an international art world reckoning. Dan Friedkin's first outing as a director, he has produced many, many films, puts Guy Pearce in the role of Van Mecheren with Clace Bang as his defendant. Who brought you the painting? Han van Mecheren. Hans von Mecheren? Indeed. I'm Captain Joseph Piller of the Allied Provisional Government. Oh, please, come in, gentlemen. Thank you. Were you expecting us? In these times, one expects anything. By all accounts, he was quite a character. What was the nugget of gold that, that, that helped you step inside him? Well, I think it was just his history, you know, just his upbringing and, and, and that incredible that that is sort of incredible fall from grace that that he cultivated i suppose in that you know he was a man who as a boy was you know under a terrible pressure from his father or not even pressure but a, but just a terrible upbringing where the father made him feel completely worthless and it, it sort of discovered art as a young boy and as a great sort of therapy and and solace and 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 very quickly sort of left home and and moved into the art world and went to art school and went to France and you know really that became his savior to then be sort of dismissed by art critics as sort of tired and unoriginal kind of artist was i think just devastating for him because it it i suppose then solidified everything his father had instilled you know his father used to make him write you know i am worth nothing i will be nothing i am nothing you know hundreds of times it was just i know i have a four-year-old boy now and i can't unless everything that comes out of my mouth to my little boy is absolutely encouraging and full of love and sort of just wonder with him i feel terrible i don't know how anybody can do the horrendous things that Han von Mecheren's father did to him. So for him to, to then rely on this sort of other world that he's created for himself in art, and then to have that world spit him out, must have just been unbearable. So knowing that and, and sort of learning that about him, makes me completely understand why he did what he did, I suppose. And, and he's clearly somebody, you know, with talent. There's no doubt about it. I mean, he was, he was invited into art societies when he was 
in France and, you know, as he was a sort of a studying artist, etc. So it wasn't... He had, like, he had sell-out shows, right, of his own work. Well, he, he, early on, er, sort of early on, he was, you know, his work was considered, you know, innovative and, and, and worth looking at. And then he had a show, I think in, I forget if it was in The Hague uh, or in Rotterdam, and the critics just tore him to pieces and just said, ugh, just, you know... And, you know, clearly Holland has a, a fairly illustrious um, history when it comes to art. So there's a lot to live up to. And mm. I think he saw the possibilities that he could be one of the greats and hoped that he would be and probably deep down needed to be in order to survive this terrible childhood that he had. And so when it was discovered early on that he wasn't going to be, and I don't really understand whether his decision to become an art dealer and to start forging paintings, et cetera, was, was just out of revenge. I don't really think it was. I think, I think that there's a real drive and a need to get to the heart of those original masters that he adored so much, that to imitate them was probably the only thing he could do. He couldn't do anything else psychologically. So I think imitating them, he, he somehow managed to justify that, mm. you know, and I don't profess to understand this man. I understand that, as I say, he, he had this traumatic experience growing up and he had this traumatic experience in the art world and that, and that he probably then cultivated some sense of grandeur that he felt he was owed to him. And so we see him, I mean, obviously we see him in the film, you know, living the high life because he's earned enough money from the paintings that he's sold to almost pretend that the war's not even going on. You know, well, the rest of the country is under sort of Nazi occupation. He's there drinking champagne and having fabulous parties and, and sleeping with lots of women and being quite gregarious. There are people who are having a, a pandemic like that at the moment, aren't there? Yeah, that's right. I mean, so, so quite fascinating that that someone could do that and quite sort of pathological and you know and and clearly narcissistic and a very damaged human being you know mm. so yeah really fascinating character to play because as sort of flamboyant as I got to be in the film that he would be underneath you always know I suppose well I always knew and and we get to sort of see moments of the vulnerability through the performance as well. So hopefully our audience goes, okay, is he, you know, do we adore this man or do we kind of, are we repulsed by this man? Do we understand what it is that he's done or do we abhor it, you know? So really fascinating to play with such extremes, I suppose. Yeah, and to have, um, you know, to have some footage available of him. I went and found, you know, some of that film footage of the, of the court case and it's so... Did you watch or do you try to avoid any information about a real person? No, I mean, I, I certainly looked at bits and pieces and looked at photographs and read various excerpts and, you know, I was fine with that sort of research. I, I take what I can and that at a certain point I need to just put it away. If I, if I feel like I'm getting a grip on a character or the character that feels right for me to play, then I need to put that stuff away because mm. otherwise it can become a bit like homework and it can feel a little overwhelming and I, I can, it can then just start to all get a bit heady and it's sort of stuff that I feel I'm supposed to remember as opposed to just feeling it 
and and portraying it you know mm. I was thinking about how we do often talk about um, actors playing a role and and not working a role and I was thinking well like what's the trick to finding a happy balance between the play and the work I don't know what the trick is I mean I think if we knew <laughs> you know so and I, I guess you know it's interesting when you when you play somebody who has existed before because you're I mean, I suppose if you look at a script that is written just as a script and it doesn't exist as a book and it's a, and it wasn't a real life story, um, you're you're still looking for clues. You're still you're still wanting to be inspired by by little behaviours on the page that tell you who it is you're playing. Um, and and as much as a story might be sort of set in another time and it might be set in another place and you've got all this sort of homework to do about that world, et cetera. The thing that I'm focusing on is the personality and the psychology of that person. Cause I've got to be convincing. I've, that's the thing I've got to focus on. It's the writer's job to know about the history of the Czech Republic in the 12th century or what, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I can read a bit about it, but it's not going to affect my performance. What I need to understand is the dynamic between my character and his wife or his child or what, you know what I mean? That's the stuff that I'm focusing on. Mm. Um, and whether it happened in real life or whether it's a fiction, um, you're always looking for clues and you're always looking for bits and pieces. And, and at a certain point you sort of latch on and go, aha, okay. And, and it might be as soon as you read the script and they're the best ones I find. If you read something and go, oh yeah, oh, oh, okay, let's go. Let's start doing it. <laughs> It's all in there. It's all in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. They're the best. That's yeah. great. When you're at the starting line, the minute you've turned the final page. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I love a good interrogation scene, I, I guess, as much as anyone else. And there are, you know, a few of those and in, in sort of interrogation and courtroom scenes. And there's a few of those in The Last Vermeer. And I was, I was thinking about something that Paul Kelly, your fellow countryman, said about being, an, being a musician you need to treat your body as if you are an Olympic athlete. Um, and it, it sort of, I was thinking about those scenes where you're going one-on-one -on -one with, a, with a fellow actor uh, in a film and you're, you're kind of working up to a big one-on-one -on -one scene. What is, the, what is the bodily prep for that? You know, you've got, the, you've got the intellectual preparation, as you say, from the research you've done, but is one-on-one -on -one a, a bit like going into a fight or a race? Well, I don't know, um, because the, by, by that point anyway, the preparation is far more than just the sort of the, the heady kind of researchy stuff anyway. You know, we've, we've spent a lot of time talking, rehearsing, you know, um, and that it's, it's sort of beyond, hopefully is beyond all the intellectual stuff anyway, and that we're both, you know, I'm understanding what it is he's trying to do. He's understanding what it is I'm trying to do. And the thing with Clay, so I mean, he's so delightful and so respectful and vice versa. We really loved each other and are really good friends now. Um, and so it's so satisfying to work with somebody who's got your back and vice versa, you know. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's so tantalising, you know. It's really, really sort of intoxicating when you, when you, when you have an actor who's who's really able to give you, you know, the thing that you know you need that you want to take and throw back at them, you know. So it's, I don't know that it's necessarily, I mean, the, the idea of suggesting that it's like a race or something to do with the Olympics sort of feels competitive or sporty, mm. whereas I think this feels more 
I mean, it probably is sporty, but you're on the same team, you know, it's that sort of idea, I guess. Is it all high fives and fist bumps when you when you get a good one? I mean, I'm not a high five and fist bump <laughs> kind of guy, you know. So it's like when people say to me, if I get a role in something, people go, oh my God, are you excited? I'm like, look, my mum's from the north of England. We don't really do excitement, you know. I'm yeah. probably there's probably some excitement in there, but not in the way that you're expecting me to sort of Yeah, you know? it's more it's more like, oh good, still got a job. So Yeah, still got a job. <laughs> I mean, look, and don't get me wrong, I need to feel excited. I need to feel excited in order to move forward and do the job, but it's not the sort of excitement that I share with somebody who goes, oh, cool, the film, how exciting. You know what I mean? It's, it's, I need to keep it to myself. <laughs> yeah, I do know what you mean. Well, okay, so I mentioned, I think, and I think Paul Kelly was talking more about, at least about competitiveness, but more about um, uh, about that if when you're an artist, you have to look after your body in the same way that a high performance athlete would. But that's... well, yeah, I mean that's right. You've got you know you, there's there's stamina involved, and yeah. and the thing about a film, you know, quite often you've got something really physical to do all of a sudden that you have to then do 27 times, like run and jump over a fence and wrestle someone to the ground, and that might just be one quick scene. And you read past that, it's three lines of big print, um, you know. <laughs> And, you, and then you get to that scene and go, all right, so tonight is all about running and jumping over that fence and wrestling that guy to the ground and we're going to do it 25 times. For, Ooh, for okay. three seconds of screen time. Yeah, but, it's but I mean, it's, you know. Three seconds ever, yeah. And the older you get, the more you can hurt yourself, <laughs> the harder that stuff gets. <laughs> so you do have to sort of be in shape to some degree. Mm, okay, so uh, speaking of being in shape, I just watched uh, um, Swinging Safari the other night. Uh, um, traumatic childhood flashbacks. Hilarious. Um, the next game is called Swinging Safari. Stuff it. Oh, I'm in. Amazing. Uh, but um, I did notice that Kylie did the credits song. And uh, so my first film-related question for you is, you know, where, where are your soundtrack contributions at, Guy? Come on. Well, there was none in that film, but I've I've completely done the soundtrack for the film Poor Boy that I'm supposed to direct uh, that unfortunately is not managing to get made just yet. Is that title based on a split-in song? One look in the poor boy. Well, so my friend Matt Cameron wrote the play originally oh. in conjunction with Tim and the... In the play, we sing a bunch of Tim Finn songs. And in the film, which is an adaptation of the play, I won't have the actors bursting into song like we did in the play, but I do have the songs as part of our soundtrack, but I've done completely reworked different versions of them. Amazing. Um, yeah, I mean, beautiful songs, just incredibly beautiful songs, obviously. Oh, well, let's get that funded so we can see it let's as soon as possible. Right, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, in your humble Australian opinion, the best Australian film ever made is? <gasps> wow, okay. Jesus, I've got to put my thinking cap on here. Um, the best Australian film. Wow, that's a hard one. Gallipoli's one that comes to mind. What are your legs? Springs. Steel springs. What are they going to do? Hurl me down the track. How fast can you run? As fast as a leopard. How fast are you going to run? As fast as a leopard. Then let's see you do it. 100%. Yeah. It's a beautiful one. That, yeah. Uh, yeah. And very quickly, the pandemic's been a desperate time for parents. So we're always looking for recommendations. Uh, what is the film that you and your son have enjoyed the most 
at this time? Well, I've only just introduced him to Bluey, actually, which I know is not a film, but he's loving every second of it. So that's sort of the latest thing. It also gets him out of Paw Patrol. Yes. Uh, um, which I'm thrilled about. And it just means I get a little bit of home while I'm here. So it's not yeah. a film, but um, but he did ask me the other day, he said to me, Papa, have you seen um, Finding Nemo? And I said, well, no, I haven't actually, Bubba. Um, is it time for us to watch it? He said, I've already seen it. And he saw it while I was away in Australia making Jack Irish. Meanwhile, he's here watching films without me knowing about it. So, <laughs> Ben, can I please ask you to very quickly wrap up with um, one of our favourite Memento reviews on Letterboxd of all time. So the best review of Memento on Letterboxd basically said, this is what Finding Dory should have been. Oh no, I'm sorry. I, I suffer from short-term memory loss. You don't remember what we were talking about? Mm-mm. Over a period of three years, journalist Jessica Bruder spent months at a time living in a camper van she named Van Halen, documenting the nomadic population of itinerant Americans who live on the road full-time. An article became a book, and that book has become a film, Nomadland, Chloe Jaw's much-awarded drama starring Frances McDormand, and many of the real-life nomads from Jessica's book. It is a tough time right now. You may want to consider early retirement. I need work. I like work. As Nomadland continues its march towards the Oscars, after picking up the Best Drama and Best Director awards at the Golden Globes, I caught up with Jessica over Zoom at her home in Brooklyn, New York. Jessica, I'm really excited to talk to you because one of my favourite movie-making pathways um, is when a really deep piece of journalism is made into a movie, into a narrative film. And um, because I'm so interested in that, that journey from you having spent all this time with real people to Chloe having um, fictionalised that in a sense. Uh, and I wanted to know, I mean, the very first question is the very most basic one. How do you feel about the film of your, of your experience? I love the film, but I am probably the least objective person you could ask about that. I mean, in the opening scene, I don't think this will spoil or anything, uh, Frances McDormand's character hugs a guy I met when I was first reporting on the closure of the town of Empire a decade ago. So to see all these faces and places really makes me well up. And then of course, there's just this brilliant narrative overlay that wove through them. And I found incredibly moving and very challenging to watch during the pandemic, just these vistas, these wide open spaces. Um, I had a little bit of wanderlust before, I think it multiplied watching the film, uh, but it's a thrill. And seeing people from the book making the transition to the screen has been just amazing because I think they did such a fantastic job. And it makes me think about how we silo folks into different categories. You know. You and I are journalists, other people do movies, and uh, for them to be acting completely for the first time at that stage of their lives and just killing it is really, really gratifying. Not just killing it, but um, seeming like um, while they are acting with integrity and you know within the uh, context of the story itself, seeming like they're having a really good time. 
yeah, from what I can tell, they had a blast. Uh, I did get some FOMO <laughs> occasionally at the beginning when Linda was out there and I just wanted to hear everything. And I remember her texting me photos from Walt Drug and elsewhere and yeah, they were definitely having a blast. So what was the, um, I mean, you know, the, the, I know the basic process is a book gets optioned and then eventually made into a film, but, and, and I've read a little bit about this, but I, I would love to hear what happens when you find out that Hollywood is interested and how you begin the process, I guess, of, in, in some ways, letting go. Um, and in other ways, and in, in, in particularly with Nomadland, actually being the bridge between the people and the studio. All right, that's a lot of questions. So I did yeah. not <laughs> anticipate this kind of interest in the book. I actually had been approached by a bunch of folks, mostly documentarians after the magazine article that led to the book came out and uh, um, turned down a few things because I couldn't imagine going back on the road with a bunch of cameras and trying to do the kind of intimate reporting that I'm good at. Um, I'm sure there are people out there who are capable of doing all those things. I'm just not uh, schooled in it. So. When I found out after the book that there was interest, uh, I was approached by an agent at UTA, the fantastic Jasmine Lake, and she wanted to represent it. And I thought that was very cool. I met her in LA where I was with my van on book tour. She got to watch me park, parallel park a 19 foot van in LA. That was a little humiliating, um, but I loved her, had confidence in her, but I have so many people uh, I know who are also journalists and joke that the Hollywood ship threatened to dock and then it didn't, or that their projects get optioned and then they hear cricket. So I was trying to keep myself on a steady diet of low expectations from the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't say anything to Linda or other people who I'd been documenting and stayed in touch with. Um, and when it happened, it just moved really quickly. I was shocked. I mean, not shocked in a bad way. Um, I, was, I was quite excited to see how it would unfold and eager to help however I could. And while you know, I, I hadn't had Francis or Chloe in my life. I felt like I knew a bit about them from their past work. And, you know, it, it was a leap of faith to introduce them to people whose stories I had felt so responsible to tell well uh, and faithfully and connecting them with someone else when that person is a bit of an unknown quantity is mildly terrifying. But, mm. you know, I'd rather see how someone walks the walk rather than what they talk at me and seeing how Francis and Chloe walk the walk, seeing their previous work, I, I felt like that was as good an indicator as any uh, that, that we'd have a great project on our hands. So interesting how um, Francis, for example, as an actor can play so many different roles, but in, in all of those roles, you can sense the integrity and the intention that you, that you do pick all of that up. It's, it's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of, it's like a job interview. All, all of the previous filmography is, is essentially giving you the information you need to know about a person, even though they're not playing themselves. Yeah. And, and she just, when I didn't meet her until we were on set and when I did meet her, she just seemed so deep in the role. I mean, it, it was kind of intense. I think everybody was a little exhausted at that point. And <laughs> she was just so far in there that it was kind of wild to watch even when, you know, we weren't on set. Um, I want to talk to you about uh, the films you love because Letterboxd is all about sharing our, our love of film and, and our taste in film with each other. But um, I guess first, another question on Nomadland because 
one of the things that's been all too easy to do as as film lovers and people reporting on film in the last year is to watch a movie and immediately place it in the context of COVID, in the context of the pandemic. So, you know, you watch something and you go, oh, that's so, you know, it's so in the context of now, it feels uh, even, I don't know, Bill and Ted 3 and the conclusion of that being to combine people throughout history playing the same song together and, you know, it speaks so, so beautifully to this lack of human connection, physical connection we have at the moment. You, know, you could draw a line between any film and what's happening right now, it seems. But with Nomadland in particular, it is, it is, a, it is one of those spooky and amazing coincidences that it is, it is landing now at a time when so many of the themes in the film are on our minds and not just the wanderlust and the need to get out and see landscapes. But certainly, you know, at a time when so many people have lost their jobs, when your government in particular has been incredibly slow to act on that, on top of um, decades of towns falling apart. And I just, I don't, I don't know, it's more of a statement. There's, no, there's not really a question in there. It's just how funny it is that that the timing is is so unbelievable. I, I couldn't agree with you more and saying that our government was unbelievably slow is a very diplomatic way to put it. Um, in a strange way the book had weird timing as well. I reported it under the Obama administration but the fact that it came out when Trump was in office I, I wondered if people paid more attention to it because they were thinking more about some of the issues the book raises by the time Trump was in office because everybody was so much more attuned to certain things about how America works and who it works for. Mm. It's a little political question, but since the change in administration, do you have slightly less of a hangover every day? Um, <laughs> you know, a news hangover? Or is it? does it all, because of the pandemic, still feel as intense? Well, a different kind of hangover. Before it was vodka, and now it's, no, I don't. Cocktails <laughs> <laughs> are great. Um, yeah, I... I do feel a bit less creeping dread, and I love not having to read about Trump every day, although I do relish the prosecution in the Southern District that we're hoping will happen very soon. And mm. um, yeah, I mean, that weight has lifted, but I do feel like we had so many issues even before Trump was in office, and we've been set back so far on so many of them. Um, am I excited that we will slowly start digging out of a very deep hole. Yeah, but we're still in the bottom of the hole. So kind of like, you know, looking at the shovel, looking at the wall of dirt. Going, yeah. Okay, here we go. Yeah, the sky is a long, a long way up there. Yeah, we think it's still there, yeah. um, but we'd like to be a little closer to it. If in the great words of Roger Ebert, movies are empathy machines and no man led certainly, certainly will open um, viewers eyes to a different way of living a different way of looking at money a different way of looking at the concept of home and connection um i want to ask about some of the movies that you've connected with the most throughout your life and so i guess um is there a film that first made you feel seen or represented on screen okay well i'm going to first tell you that among my friends i'm known as the one who's kind of movie stupid <laughs> Yay. Welcome to the podcast Yay. about movies. It's going to trash me, but that's fine. I can handle it. Um, yeah, good. no, I, I grew up like in a total book house. Books for me were the original empathy machines and the narrative journalism, a way to try to walk in other people's shoes and then share what you learn. Uh, but obviously I've gotten more into film. I am fascinated with it, but I'm also, I kind of 
come to it with a bit of newbie-ish excitement, which is weird because I'm 42. <laughs> but what can you do? Um, it's never too late. Christina represented. <laughs> All right. I, I'm not trying to be cheeky with you, but this is what uh, jumps at me off, uh, off the top of my head because I, I think growing up, I always felt like a bit of a space alien. So I didn't really say, oh, that's me on screen. But I do remember when Clerks came out. I'm stuck in this pit, working for less than slave wages, working on my day off. The goddamn steel shutters are closed. I smell like shoe polish. My life's in this shitter right now. And if you don't mind, I'd like to stew a bit. Because I had been working at one of the first Starbucks in New Jersey. And just thinking about <laughs> all the things in like low wage service jobs that you do to pass the time and entertain yourself. I was actually on a night shift with Dante Ricci, Christina Ricci's older brother. And he was more outwardly disgruntled than some of us. We were all a little disgruntled, but his favorite hobby was taking day old pecan raisin rolls, putting them in the blender and that fried out the motor. So we wouldn't have to make frappuccinos, which we didn't. And we gave all the regulars free coffee. We did Starbucks the Musical. It was all part of this era. I remember I had a friend in late high school who was working at the Gap in the Willowbrook Mall. She was like a rockabilly chick and they told her to wear Gap clothing. So she wore a bathrobe. Like that was kind of where we all were mentally. So how's that for my This is amazing. That we wanted. <laughs> <laughs> so then Kevin Smith came along with a movie that just encapsulated this yep, yep. this existence oh that's beautiful speaking to your profession what is the best depiction of journalism or journalists that you've seen on screen okay don't hate me i've got three favorites one is the killing fields i'm sorry sydney i'm late where have you been they stopped me because of the curfew oh because of the curfew huh yes i'm sorry sydney all right, you can get started on this. Tell them to uh, start sending this out, but hold on to the last two paragraphs. I'll be over with corrections in an hour. They don't transmit to this, Sydney. The transmitter at Kambal got hit. They say 6 p.m. We can find 6 p.m. What do you think this is that we're working for? A monthly magazine? This is a newspaper. Oh my God, I haven't thought about that movie in years. Yeah, which is just amazing, <sighs> just the relationship between Death Prawn and Sidney Schoenberg, that story amid the war of friendship and human connection, how it's really never just about the story and, and what Prawn went to through just those four years of starvation and torture. Um, in 2005, I was interning for the Jersey section at the Times, and I was out on assignment with him once, covering a abandoned village that had been for people with epilepsy in the late 1800s. That was the, the town and the state were fighting over it. And he was just this amazing soft-spoken man and just getting to see him work was such a gift. And I, I couldn't believe we were there. And it was in this kind of haunted place. So thinking about the killing fields, it just really, you know, made my head spin. This is incredible. What was your, like, what's the, what's the best thing you learned from watching him work? It's just a certain... I couldn't give you one tip or something, but just kind of this quiet patience and this openness to the scene around him, which is great. I tend to run like a drunken Muppet in the direction of what I'm doing and see, seeing him uh, interact with space that way was great. Um, other two are yeah. Camera Person by Kirsten Johnson, which was amazing, um, and Citizen Four. Both of those films are you know, obviously more recent, but um, because as journalists, I guess we kind of live with all the president's men for so long. Or, uh, yeah, I feel like those, uh, both of those films are, are digging more deeply into 
contemporary journalism and all of the uh, contemporary pressures yeah. on the media. Absolutely. Yeah. And I was the accidental mule for the Snowden archive. It all came to my apartment in a box. So when I first saw that movie premiere and I knew that information wasn't public yet, it was just trippy. Wait, what? Yeah. I, Do we know this? Uh, Have I, you told the story? Uh, yeah, I've written a little bit about it just because it's kind of like I... John Le Carre meets the Three Stooges. My friend and I did a short book called Snowden's Box and yeah, um, don't know much or write much about national security, but a friend and I kind of got stuck as like the piano players in this drama, as in don't shoot the piano player. The whole box came to my apartment. I get a lot of packages stolen from my apartment. I was probably in retrospect, not the best person to send it to, uh, but you know, there's a, a weird bit of a comedy that ensued behind the scenes of a very, very serious situation. Oh, it makes me want to ask what your favorite comedy film is. I didn't put that on the list. I was very serious. I was like, journalism, labor, workers' issues films. What's your favorite comedy? What what oh, lifts your heart when you need it? All right, a party girl. What are you going to do? About what? About money. There's still your rent, the lawyer for your court date. That bail cost me. Where do you work? I'm freelancing. Hmm. Why don't you get a job as a waitress? I am not a waitress. All right, then. Why don't you try to get a job at a cleaning shop? Do you realize how broke I am? What do you want me to do, huh? I don't have a job. I'm a loser. Shoot me. <laughs> that movie for me is like the old pair of jeans with a hole in the knee. I know almost every word. <laughs> yeah, you'll never look at falafel the same way. I love Parker Posey. Yeah, me too. Yeah, love it till the day I die. All right, so then more seriously, uh, there have been a lot of movies about labour issues and, and workers' rights. Obviously some more serious, obviously some much more fun. Like I'm thinking about one of my favourites is, uh, is the UK film Pride, which is such an amazing meeting of, of two different groups of people helping each other out. What is yours? All right, it's sorry to bother you. Hey, young blood. Let me give you a tip. Use your white voice. Man, I ain't got no white voice. Oh, come on, you know what I mean. You have a white voice in there, you can use it. When people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. I'm talking about the real deal, like this young blood. Hey, Mr. Kramer, this is Langston from Regal View. I didn't catch you at the wrong time, did I? Ah, Sorry, about talk course. about a different take on a labor film, but I recommend that movie to everyone I know. I think it's amazing. And I also grew up with the music videos done by Michelle Gondry. And there's all this like Gondry kind of shout out and referencing in it. So for me, that's delightful. But I just thought the complete over the top Technicolor saturated satire, uh, you know, just wondering how far it would go. It was so brilliantly written. Boots Riley is a god. And the work and the hustle to get that story into the world. It's the only movie uh, for which I went out and got the screenplay instantly because I just wanted to read it. I mean, maybe now I'll do that more often. So that's the one that turned you into a movie nerd. I, I, I got pretty obsessed with it. So yeah, it helped. It helped for sure. I actually, for the last 15 minutes of that film, thought I was tripping. I honestly yeah. thought someone had put something in my drink. Yep, yep, yep. Boots Riley put something in your drink. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm um, on the road and we did ask, we asked Bob and Swanky and Linda May for their favorite films. And, you know, no, no surprises. Some of them were things like Into the Wild, um, but also quite a lot of Spielberg and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. 
And I, I just, I love the idea that um, they're on the road watching these films, you know, whether it's, whether it's in the van or, or in a cinema as you're, as you're moving through. When you were on the road researching the book and the, and the story for this many years, do you have a great memory of a movie you stopped to watch? anywhere with anyone or just in the van? Gosh, in the van. So this was a while ago for me. So I actually, I went back and I looked at my Netflix queue from when I first was on the road in 2014. And I love talking to journalists. Apparently, this is great. Apparently I watched the road on the road, but I have very little recollection of it. And I know it was really cold outside and I probably was trying to knock myself out and sleep at that time. So I know I watched The Road, but I wish I remembered it better. The other thing uh, that might crack you up is when I was working at the Sugar Beet Harvest, I spent 12 hours on my feet. I was completely exhausted and very sore and making myself a cup of mac and cheese. And I wanted to watch something very light. And Shaun the Sheep had come out not long before. And I remember putting it on. And there was a scene where they're speeding downhill in traffic. And I just remember thinking, I was so exhausted that I remember thinking, this is too stressful. I can't watch this. I wanted like these sheep, what's gonna happen? I, I can't handle it and turning it off, so. Oh, of all the films to turn off. I, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. And to be stressed like, out by Sean, I mean, to tell you about my state of affairs. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's so funny. We've been working on a piece about uh, content consideration and trigger warnings when it comes to, you know, violence against the female body. But I never thought that um, people who travel for a living might need trigger warnings watching Shaun the Sheep. It's Yeah, it's, I hadn't thought about it either. <laughs> but it makes sense. It makes sense. So whether you're on the road or not, what is your comfort film that you mm-hmm. always turn to? Clearly not Shaun the Sheep. Not Shaun the what's, Sheep. What's, what's the one that has no troubling, yeah, no troubling content? Oh, My Neighbor Totoro, Miyazaki. My Neighbor Totoro. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you're asked to program a triple feature and Nomadland is at the center of that. What are the other two films we're watching? Okay. I just, first off, I was racking my brain on this because I don't have this recall palette of films that a lot of my friends have and I wish I had so I was like what did I see recently that I liked and I'm going to just make it a Chloe Zhao triple feature because she's utterly fantastic she has three films (laughs) songs my brother stopped me the rider and Nomadland and I've never watched them back to back to see her arc evolve as a filmmaker and I think that would be really interesting so that might be my next triple feature. You have a unique inside viewpoint on the way that Chloe works as someone who's not on the crew, who's not an actor, you know, and obviously, as you said at the very beginning, you're the least objective person about this, but if you could encapsulate what, what happens when Chloe is running a film set, what does that look like? What is her, what is her magic? Well, more than actually the running of the set, what struck me was just the way she rolls up her sleeves. So the first time I spoke with Chloe, we hadn't, the film hadn't been greenlit yet. It was not a sure thing. I got this call saying that Chloe was going to go to the Rubber Tramp Rendezvous and could I talk to her? And she'd gone out there with a car and a tent and a cooking stove, which was pretty much how I went out there in 2014. And I I just remember wanting to describe everything to her and how it had changed, but also thinking, okay, this is really cool. She's not at an arm's length from this material. She's going out there. She's going to camp out. She's out there solo. And thinking at that point, 
is just how all directors work, just because I didn't have a point of reference. But then feeling that that approach carried through everything I saw. And that was that was pretty great. Uh, that's so amazing to hear. And obviously, you've just got such an excellent uh, experience in having a book option. So, you know, when you're talking to your journalism friends, <laughs> it's a positive story rather than a sitting around waiting forever story, which is really lovely and, and heartening. Does it make you want to continue finding stories that could be cinematic? Does it change the way you're thinking about future work or are you happy over in print land? Well, for a while, I've been trying to think about narrative journalism in terms of scenes. I mean, we also do what the New Yorker calls fold-ins, which are more informational parts that give context and history to the characters we're writing about. But we often think about it in terms of characters of arc and a narrative and scenes. So I think thinking about Nomadland in that way, I mean, I'm pretty obsessed with landscapes in that book, for example, might have helped make it a good match. So I definitely want to keep doing that. But also, um, I've worked just a, with another short film and some other things now, and I really like the way people work in film. Uh, I got really curious about it. It is such a collaborative endeavor. As somebody who usually works in a solitary way, I thought it was fantastic. And you know, if there's a way to keep a toe in that, uh, I would definitely like to. I mean, the bottom line is I will go where the stories are, but I, I love playing with others. So we'll see what happens. Well, I for one, I'm looking forward to the uh, full length feature comedy of Snowden's Box. Oh so <laughs> yeah, please Every, start everybody there. Everybody wants a, you know, that kind of thriller comedy or, or Laura Poitras in a comedy. Yeah, exactly. Hitless, stand up. Nobody hit, knows on the side. Yeah. Yeah. She's hapless surveillance. It's a genre just waiting to explode. Exactly. Well, funny, she used to be, she was a chef before she was a documentarian. And I kept telling her she needs a YouTube surveillance, anti-surveillance cooking show. And she hasn't bit on this idea yet. And I really don't understand why, but you know, we can all have our dreams and I have mine. The Letterbox show is recorded in New York, Amsterdam and Auckland and edited by Tony Stamp. The theme tune is Vampirus Dansotech by Monica. Our podcast artwork is by Anne Davenport. Thanks to all our guests, Jessica Bruder, Guy Pearce and Dominic Corrie. Nomadland is out now in theatres and on Hulu. The Last Vermeer is available on Blu-ray, DVD and digital. And the Oscar nominations will be announced on Monday, March the 15th. And the 93rd Academy Awards will be held on Sunday, April 25th. And that's our show. Tune in next time. I have this condition. A condition? It's my memory. Amnesia? No, 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 no. It's different from that. Oh, no. I'm sorry. I, I suffer from short-term memory loss. You don't remember what we were talking about? Mm-mm.